If you've got a Bible this morning, you can open to Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be for these last several weeks. We've been working our way through uh, some of the parables that Jesus tells in Matthew's gospel, particularly in that 13th chapter about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we've been in this series called The Kingdom is Like Now for the last three weeks. This morning we'll wrap it up, um, taking a look at one of the final parables Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 47 to 50. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We'll read that together. If not, it'll be on the screen for you and you can follow along there. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Now, somebody asked me this morning, um, as I was kind of, as, as one of our volunteers, as they got here a little bit early, they said, it's going to be a Thanksgiving message this morning. Uh, and I said, well, it's going to end there. It's not going to start there. And so if you would give me a little bit of grace and patience this morning as we work our way through here, um, it'll end there, but it's definitely not going to start there. You know, there's some parts of the Bible uh, that are kind of uh, heartwarming passages for us. There are some parts of the Bible that are kind of like scented candles, right? They have, uh, we, we light them and they, we kind of sit around them and we catch the aroma of them as they kind of burn there uh, in our presence. Uh, they warm you up a little bit. And we're about to enter into a season called Advent in the, in the kind of movement of the church calendar. And during Advent, we'll be looking at lots of heartwarming, scentsy kind of passages, right? They'll be like warm vanilla and nutmeg cinnamon and deep pine forest and all these heartwarming kinds of passages that we'll be taking a look at. You know, the kinds of passages that whenever you're, you know, in doing your morning devotional and you open it up and you set it down on your kitchen table and you've got your cup of coffee there next to it and you take a picture of it, right? You've got to get this verse underlined about how the Lord is with you or how you have no reason to fear or how God loves you. You underline that verse, you take a picture of it, and you post it out on Instagram with a hashtag that says something like, right, a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus, right? Or like the best part of waking up is Jesus filling my cup. And like that's your little hashtag that you post out there on Instagram. These are the kinds of texts that we make memes out of, and we drop the, 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 the scripture on top of a little beach with a waves lapping over the shore or of, you know, snow-capped mountain. But then there are other texts in the Bible, other parts of the Bible that are less like uh, scentsy, uh, scented candles, and they're more like smelling salts. And so they don't necessarily warm us up, but they wake us up. Uh, they sober us up a little bit. And so these parts of the Bible, we don't take pictures of them. We don't drop them on top of, you know, flowers of uh, fields of flowers with the wind blowing through uh, those blooms. We don't drop them on top of that, um, those, those sobering kinds of texts. And this is a sobering kind of text this morning that isn't necessarily here to warm us up, but here to wake us up. And so here to sober us up because this text is about judgment. There's no, there's no easy, quick, or politically correct way to say it. The text is about judgment. To the kingdom of heaven, we've been talking about these last three weeks. Uh, one of the things that scholars have said about the kingdom of heaven is that it has an already but not yet dynamic to it. In other words, it's come in Jesus. It's broken into human history. Whenever Jesus is born and he lives and he, and he, and he dies and he rises again, the kingdom has been inaugurated but it has not yet been consummated. 
And so it has an already, it's already here and present as it expands to the corners of the globe we saw a few weeks ago. And as it invades every corner of our soul. But it has not yet come in all of its fullness. Because there's a day that the Bible envisions in which the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters the sea. There will be a day that the Bible envisions where there will be no more pain and there will be no more protests. There'll be no more tears and there'll be no more turmoil. There'll be no more sin and no more separation. There's a day that's coming in which there'll be no more decay. There'll be no more death. And in reality, there'll even be no more democracy. Because heaven is not a democracy where we all get a vote. Heaven is a theocracy where God rules and reigns as a just and righteous king. See, that day is coming. It's on the horizon. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's broken in, but it has not yet been fully realized and come to fruition But before that day comes, when the kingdom of heaven comes in all of its fullness, there will be judgment. And those who in this life, in the present already part of the kingdom's unfolding, do not bend their need to King Jesus and honor him and recognize his authority in their lives and love him and let go of their merits and cling to God's mercy, those who continue to hold on to their spiritual resume to present it to God one day, like it's going to gain them access into the exclusive club, those who live that way in this age we'll ultimately find out in the next that things will not go well for them. And that there will be judgment. Those in whom the seed, what we talked about last week, never really does set root. It never really does grow. It never really bears any fruit. And until their dying breath, they continue to trust in their merits as opposed to throwing themselves upon God's mercy. This text is about what happens on that day. It's about judgment. And it's not a very popular idea, right? (laughs) Nobody says, right, when, you, when you scroll down your, the list of podcasts, right, the most, the most listened to podcasts, right, you don't find the one about hell and judgment at the top of the list, right, in somebody's preaching and teaching ministry. It just doesn't get that many hits because it's not very popular. And the truth be told, it hasn't been popular for several hundred years. Charles Spurgeon, who was a British preacher in the 1800s, it, really, it greatly encourages me when he, he writes these words about judgment. He says, as I have told you, what is written in the Bible, this is his words, must be preached, whether it be gloomy or cheerful. There are some ministers, he says, who never mention anything about hell. I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which it is not polite to mention. And then Spurgeon responds, He ought not to have been allowed to preach again, I am sure, if he could not use plain words. Then Spurgeon says, now, if I saw that house on fire over there, he says, do you think I would stand and say, I believe the operation of combustion is proceeding yonder? And Spurgeon says, no, I would call out, fire, fire, and then everybody would know exactly what I was talking about. And my hope this morning is to speak as plainly as possible from this text about what Jesus has to say about that day that will come on the shores of human history in which all of us will be drawn to judgment. All of us will be. And so in this text, there's a few things that we see about judgment that Jesus teaches us. And the first one is this. The first thing Jesus says is that judgment is inevitable. It is inevitable. Listen, in the parable, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown into a body of water that gathers all kinds of fish. 
all kinds of fish. My brother and I, when we were young, we used to have this same net. Um, and my family had a little place on a lake over in, uh, on the border of Texas and Louisiana. And we would take that same net and we would wade out into the water in some of the grass beds. And we would take that same net and we would walk it through some of those grass beds. And it would pull up all kinds of fish. It would pull up catfish. It would pull up small bass. It would pull up minnows. It would pull up crawfish at times. It would pull up these little grass shrimp that were swimming around in some of the grass beds. It would pull up all kinds of things. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that net that's cast into a body of water and as it's drawn it's drawn it gathers all kinds of fish within its threads Jesus says and right now Jesus says in this age in the present age all those fish are swimming in the same waters they're all together he says but one day the day's coming which that net is going to be full and when that net fills it's going to be drawn to the shores of this age to the shores of human history and, and, and the things that the, 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 the fishermen want to keep are going to be kept, and the ones that they don't are going, he says, are going to be ultimately burned. The net is being gathered now, but one day it will be full. And one of, that's an image that Jesus gives us of the fact that judgment, while it may be suspended right now, it, it is sure. And while it may be delayed into the future, it is definite. That judgment is inevitable. And that right now the net's being drugged through the waters of human history and it's gathering all kinds of people from all kinds of places, all kinds of backgrounds, maybe even all kinds of beliefs. But one day that net will be full, Jesus says, and it will be drugged onto the shores of this age and there will be a separation between what Jesus says in the parable between the good fish and the bad fish, between the carp and the crappie. The ones that you want to keep and the ones that you don't necessarily want anything to do with. That's, what Je- that's Jesus' language here. He says judgment is inevitable. Now, this, this is not a very right, palatable idea for us. It's not something that sits well in our tongue, in our, our age, in our day, in our time. But I want you to consider two things that you lose, that we lose if we lose the idea of judgment. The first one is this, that if we lose the idea of judgment being inevitable for every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, we will lose any sense of objective meaning in this life. Any sense of objective meaning in this life goes out the window if you lose the inevitability of judgment. There's a playwright, an author, um, who, who's written uh, several different plays, but in one of his plays called After the Fall, Arthur Miller, he has a character named Quentin. And Quentin is wrestling with this idea of judgment. And he's wrestling with the modern notion of the fact that we have kind of pushed back against the idea of there being a judgment or there being a judge. And there's a very compelling portion of the dialogue in his play After the Fall in which Quentin says this. He says, for years I looked at life as a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, he says, you prove how brave you are and how smart you are. Then later on, you prove what a good father you are and what a good husband you are. He says, finally, you try to prove in your older age how wise you are, how powerful you are, how successful you are. He says, but underlying it all, I see now that in all my arguing, in other words, arguing for how smart I was, how brave I was, how powerful I was, how successful I was, in all my arguing, there was a presumption. He says that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation. I don't know what it was. All I knew is I would be justified or condemned for what I'd done. There would be a verdict anyway, he says. 
In other words, in all my arguing for how successful, brave, powerful, smart, wise I was, I knew that I was moving somewhere to try and validate myself before someone, to try and make myself acceptable in the eyes of someone. I was arguing for that with myself and with others. Then he goes on to say, I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with myself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying, he says, despair. Despair. He says, because I realized that no matter how hard and vigorous I argued for my bravery or for my wisdom or for my power or for my success, that no matter how hard I argued for that, I was arguing to an empty bench. If there is no judgment, if there is no judge, he says, then what we're left with is to argue with and amongst ourselves about our existence, about what gives us meaning about what gives us, per, about the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil. If there is no judge and there is no judgment, then we're really just arguing with ourselves and with each other, and there is no objective ground for saying something is right and something is wrong. If judgment is not inevitable, then who is to say that kindness is better than cruelty? If there is no judgment and there is no cosmic law by which we are judged, then who is to say that love is better than hatred or that greed is better or that generosity is better than greed? Who is to say that selflessness is better than selfishness if there's not an inevitability of judgment in which one day we will stand before a holy and righteous judge and give an account for our lives? Then there is, if there is no judge on the bench and there is no inevitability of judgment, then there is no grounds for saying this is better than that. We're just arguing with and amongst ourselves. So if you want to get rid of the idea of judgment and the inevitability of judgment, then you're left with a lack of real, real meaning and any kind of objective sense of right and wrong. But I want to show you something else that you lose if you get rid of the idea of judgment. You, not only do you lose that sense of objectivity, but you also lose any hope of being able to live a life without seeking revenge or retaliation. You lose any hope of that. Listen, I've, I've talked to some of you um, and had very interesting conversations with some of you because some of you have told me this. Look, man, if anybody ever does anything to my kids, anything to my kids, you're going to have to come to my house and physically restrain me from taking one of my 17 firearms and going and lighten that dude up. Right, some of you have actually said those words to me, and I, I just find them entertaining a little bit. Um, the prospect of that, of me having to come to somebody's house and physically restrain them. Why? Why, why, why do we feel that way? Why do, why do we feel that sense of desiring for revenge or retaliation, even at the prospect of someone doing something to us or someone that we love? See, if you get rid of the idea of there being a judgment and a judge, then you lose any hope of being able to live a life where you do not return evil for evil, where you return kindness for cruelty, you return generosity for greed, you return love for hatred. You lose it. You lose it. You, what you end up doing is getting stuck in an endless cycle of revenge and retaliation and tit for tat. Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian theologian and author, he says it this way. 
He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, listen to what he says, it's, it's intriguing what he says. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. If you're not going to return evil for evil, you've got to believe that one day there will be a judgment and that there is a judge. He says, my thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine for a moment speaking to people who have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground whose daughters and sisters have been abused and whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them as you speak is this, we should not retaliate. And they respond with, why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? He says, I say this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword, that he refuses to judge. It takes the quiet, this is, this is pretty convicting for me, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. But in a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end one day of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. He says the only way that you and I have any shot at living the kind of life that doesn't return evil for evil, cruelty for cruelty, hate for hate, is if we recognize that the net is being drawn and one day everyone will be brought to the shores of eternity and there will be a judgment. That judgment is inevitable. Because if you go to a father whose daughter has been abused and perhaps even killed, and you say to him, you know, man, violence doesn't really solve anything. Or you go to him and say, well, what kind of society would we live in if everyone took the law into their own hands. Those arguments don't work. What you have to do is go to him and say, judgment is coming, there is a judge, and he is not you. But there is one. Judgment is inevitable, Jesus says. And you can get rid of it, you can try and get rid of it, but if you do, you lose any sense of objectivity of kindness being better than cruelty love being better than hatred and if you get rid of it you also lose any hope of being able to return good for evil jesus says judgment is inevitable but it's also jesus teaches us in this parable that it's unbearable it's also unbearable see in the parable jesus refers to the destination of the evil person as a place rather than a period of time he doesn't say that it's a period of time in which God will purge out all the evil from them and one day they will come into his presence in all of his glory. Nor does he say that there will be a day in which it's a period of time in which God will punish them and then they will kind of drift off into non-existence and they won't exist anymore. He says it's a place and he speaks of it as, as John does in, Revela in the end of, in, in, end of Revelation as a fiery furnace. As Satan and his demons at the end of Revelation are thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus says it's a place that's a fiery furnace. And then he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth is biblical language that describes this angst or anxiety or anguish or torment that exists there. 
And so Jesus says it's unbearable to think about the ultimate destiny of those who are drawn out of these waters to the shores of eternity and separated out as what he calls bad fish. Or as he calls them the parable further up in Matthew 13, as he calls them the weeds instead of the wheat. When there's that separation at the end of the age, it's unbearable to think about the realities of hell. It is. It's unimaginable to think about the destiny of those whom refuse to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus and love him with all of their heart, soul, and mind and strength. John Bunyan, he wrote a great book called The Pilgrim's Progress. But he also wrote several other things. In one of his writings on this topic of hell, listen to how he describes it. He says, In hell you shall have none but a company of condemned souls, with an innumerable, in other words, so many that you can't count, company of demons to keep company with you. While you are in this world, the very thought of the devil's appearing to you makes your flesh tremble and your hair ready to stand upright on your head. He says, the very thought of seeing a demon or the very thought of experiencing some kind of evil force in this life causes goosebumps all over your body. Right? It's like you see in the movies whenever that little girl, her hair just kind of goes right, right up on top of her head. That's what he says, even the thought of that happening here, having a brush with that kind of evil in this age, that's what it causes. He says, he goes on, but he says, but oh, what will you do when not only the supposition, in other words, the prospect of the devil's appearing, but the real society or fellowship with all those demons of hell will be with you, howling, roaring, and screeching in such a hideous manner that you will be even at your wit's end and ready to run stark mad again for anguish and torment. If after 10,000 years, he says, an end should come, there would be comfort. But here is your misery, that you must be here forever. When you see what an innumerable company of howling demons you are among... You shall think this again, this is my portion forever. And when you have been in hell so many thousand years, as there are stars in the sky or drops in the sea or sand on the seashore, yet you have to lie there forever. Oh, this one word, forever. How it will torment your soul. See, the thought of judgment is unbearable for us. It's unimaginable. And so far that the brush with evil in this life would cause all kinds of physical reactions in our body to think that we would encounter the fullness of that for all the ages to come. Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because judgment, while it is inevitable, it is also unbearable. But who is the judge? Who's on the bench? who's put on the robe. And the rest of the Bible, when you look at the, the testimony of Scripture, says that Jesus is the one who holds the gavel, that Jesus is the chief justice of all of human history. He is the one wearing the robe. He is the one behind the bench. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, the Father has given all authority to him to judge. And then in Acts chapter 17, when Paul's talking to the men at Athens, He's giving them a sermon and he's talking to these men who come from all kinds of backgrounds with all different kinds of beliefs who worship all different kinds of gods. And he begins to talk to them about Jesus. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 17 verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked 
In other words, before you knew about Jesus, before you heard about the, the majesty and beauty of God, God overlooked those times of ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And who is this man he has appointed? Paul goes on to say, and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him, the man he has appointed the judge, from the dead. That Jesus is the judge who dispenses the judgment. And this is hard for some of us to swallow because we're thinking about Jesus meek and mild, right? Sweet little Jesus boy, born in the manger. While the little lamb sits there next to him and the doves coo. We think of Jesus with his long flowing hair, wearing a white robe and some Teva sandals. Like that Jesus, he's not going to judge anybody. Not with that kind of, not with that kind of judgment, that severity of judgment that is unimaginable and unbearable. We have a hard time wrapping our mind around this Jesus who comes and speaks of the the, the loving heart of a father being the one who would hold the gavel at the end of human history. We wrestle with that. And if you're wrestling with that this morning, as we talk through this, respond to it in two ways. First of all, let me respond to it by saying this, is that if you're wrestling with that, what you need to see is that judgment, judgment or justice is the right response to unrighteousness always. Justice is always the right response to unrighteousness. See, you and I, when we look at a a, a municipal court judge, or we look at a circuit court judge, or we look at the state Supreme Court judge, or we look at Supreme Court judges who sit on the highest court of our nation, what do we call them? We call them justices. Why do we call them justices? We call them justices because their verdicts are intended to uphold and exercise justice. To do what is right in the face of what is wrong, right? To punish those who have committed an offense. And oftentimes, you, you feel this reaction, right? Whenever someone has committed an offense and the judge renders a verdict that is right and that is just, there is a sense of, right, this vindication that rises within you. Like, that is right. He should be punished on account of what he has done. And the flip side is true also whenever someone gets off on a technicality or a loophole in the law. But everyone recognizes there was guilt there. They actually perpetrated a crime. What do you feel? You feel a sense of as if justice has been perverted. It's been perverted. When a father or a mother who has abused their child, whenever they get off on a technicality and they continue to retain custody, of that child, what do you, there's a sense in which you know that is not right. When justices render verdicts, they do so for the sake of doing what is right in the face of what is wrong. Justice is always the right response to unrighteousness. We recognize that horizontally, but what we need to do is recognize that vertically as well. That Jesus is indeed the great chief justice of human history that he does hold the gavel, that he does sit behind the bench, and the verdicts that he renders are always right. They're always in line with God's law and his justice being dispensed. There are others of us who maybe wrestle with the idea of God being an angry God or a wrathful God. 
Maybe you go, man, I grew up in a, in a, in a church where all they ever talked about how, was how God was going to smite me, how God was going to crush me, how God was going to judge me. And every Sunday there was a guy up there with a suit and a tie banging on the pulpit talking about God's anger and his wrath. And I want you to know something. That if that was your experience, then you had a one-sided experience. It was an incomplete experience, but what he was saying perhaps oftentimes was very true. Because here's why. Because anger, anger is the overflow of love. It is the overflow of love. You know this from your own human experience, don't you? That God, so, so God's anger is the overflow of his love for us. right? The overflow of our lack of response to his love for us. See, listen, if, if, I, if I love my wife, which I do, we've been married for 15 years, love her deeply, if I love my wife and she sins against me in a very egregious way, which she would not do, obviously because she's my wife, but if she sins against me in a very egregious way, and I just go, oh well, all right, better luck next time, then that's, that, that's not love. There's no love there. But if she sins against me in a very egregious way, what rises in my heart is not an apathy, but an anger. An anger. Whenever people that we love deeply do not return that love back to us, it causes anger to rise within us. And that is right. Anyone who's ever been hurt deeply knows that experience of anger rising in their heart. And there is just and righteous anger that arises in our hearts when we are sinned against. Listen, if you just have a business acquaintance who violates your trust... There may be a level of frustration there, but if you have a best friend for the last 30 years that you have shared the ups and downs and peaks and valleys of life with, and they violate your trust, that is a much different response. There's a much different degree of anger because here's why. The closeness of the relationship determines the degree of anger whenever you are sinned against in that relationship. The degree of love determines the degree of anger because anger is the overflow of love. Now let me ask you this. What if there was someone whose love was infinite and knew no bounds? Someone whose love was as expansive as the sky and as deep as the depths of the oceans. Someone whose acts of love toward you were as innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. So that every drop of water in the ocean and every, every grain of sand at its bottom was an act and advancement of his love toward you. That's how the Bible presents the love of God for his people. And for someone all of their lives to spurn the love of God, to reject the love of God, to run away from the love of God, to rebel against the love of God, it awakens an infinite anger. Because we've spurned an infinite love. 
So if you're wrestling with the Teva sandaled, long hair flowing, porcelain skin, Jesus judging anybody, taking the gavel, and having eyes inflamed with fury, you need to recognize that anger is the overflow of his love. Now, in, our, in the time that we have left, here's what I want to do. I want to press this down pretty practically in our lives. Judgment is inevitable. It is unbearable. Unbearable. But here's what I want you to see. I told you the message wouldn't start with Thanksgiving, but it's going to end there. Here's what I want you to see. Is that what the rest of the Bible teaches us about God and about His Son teaches us that it doesn't have to end that way for you. See, it will end that way for some as the nets are drawn and we're all brought to those shores of eternity and separated, but that it does not have to end that way for you. It doesn't. And here is why. The Bible teaches from, the, from Genesis to Revelation, it teaches us this truth. Is that there is a judge who took your judgment. That there is a judge who took your judgment. There's a beautiful picture of this in the book of Exodus in chapter 17. The people have been grumbling against God and against Moses' his prophet. Moses led them out of slavery and bondage and captivity. And he's leading them toward the promised land. And they're just complaining out in the desert because they don't have anything to eat or drink. And Moses comes before God and says, what do I do with these people? They're about to stone me. <laughs> They're about to take up rocks and destroy me and crush me and kill me and murder me. And God says in Exodus chapter 17, this is what he tells Moses to do. He tells Moses in Exodus 17, uh, 5, The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. What's he doing? He's calling a court into a semblance. The elders were coming together, and there would be a verdict that would be rendered. It would be passed down to the people. And then in verse 6 he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. What the text is telling us is this, as the story unfolds, Moses takes what God, God has said. He takes the people, the elders, they assemble the people. And I've, I've looked into this. There's nowhere else in the Bible where it says that God would stand before the people. Whenever God, people, when God was in the presence of people, they were always coming before him, not him before them. Right? Whenever you go before a judge, you go before him. I remember that experience as a 17-year-old kid who had a couple of traffic violations. It was terrifying standing before this judge who I felt like had the power of life and death over me because of a couple of accidents I'd gotten in. But you go stand before the judge. The judge doesn't stand before you, but God says here, assemble the people, assemble the elders, assemble court and take the rod. And I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb. And Moses, here's what you do. You take the rod the rod which had come to judge the people of Egypt whenever you dipped it into the, Niles, uh, the waters of the Nile. And I want you to strike down upon the rock. 
and in a sign of their ju- judgment is falling. A verdict has been rendered. And who does the rod fall upon? It doesn't fall upon the people who are standing before God, but it falls upon the God who is standing before His people. And what happens in that rock is that water begins to flow. That God Himself takes the judgment that was, should have fallen on the people for their rebellion and resistance to God. He says, I will stand before you. The judgment will fall upon me. And from that judgment falling upon me, what you need, the waters of life, are going to flow out from that. It's a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture. And that picture is there to point us to the reality of where that would take place fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. See, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this. As he speaks about the condition of all, all humanity, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big theological term that means this. That means that what Jesus did was he took the wrath of God for us and turned the wrath of God from us. He put him forward to take and turn the wrath of God by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness, verse 26, at the present time so that he, God, or Jesus, might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God might both be the judge who exercises justice and the one who steps off of the bench, comes around and has the rod of God's justice fall upon him as the one who would justify everyone who would trust in Jesus. See, all of us, no matter what stock you were born from, no matter what your pedigree looks like, no matter how padded your resume is, of all of your good works, all of us are born as those who deserve to have the rod of God's judgment fall on us. But God says it doesn't have to happen that way for you. Because what God has done is He set His Son forward so that He would be struck with God's judgment. And that as he is struck with God's judgment, that he would turn God's wrath from you as he took it for you. And that from him, streams of living water would run and trickle down for you. It's a beautiful picture. And so what do you do with that? Three things as we close. Some of you are really concerned right now, but they're going to be quick. Three things as we close. And the first one is this. Some of you this morning, you need to trust the judge who took your judgment. Some of you this morning, God has brought you here for this very moment. God has brought you here for this very time. Because maybe you've heard this, maybe you've heard about Jesus before, maybe you've heard about God before, maybe you've heard about judgment before. But maybe the severity of God has never struck you like it has today. 
Or maybe the kindness of God has never struck you as it has today. Because Paul says elsewhere in the book of Romans that it's God's kindness that leads you and I to repentance, to turn away from sin and turn toward God. Some of you this morning, you need, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, to repent of sin and turn toward Jesus for the very first time in your life. You've never done that. Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've experienced revival meetings. Maybe you've been to camps. And you've heard the word of God go forth. And you've heard people talk about Jesus. And maybe you've had conversations with coworkers or friends. But there's never been a moment in which you recognize the severity of God and his judgment. But the kindness of God that he took that for you. And that you would run your spiritual resume through the document shredder of the cross. And that you would taste and know the sweetness of the waters of life that he has provided for you. That you would trust the judge who took your judgment. Second of all, some of us this morning... We need to begin to live like Jesus took our judgment. Maybe you, have, maybe you are a Christian and maybe you have uh, followed him for many, many years. But you begin, need to begin now to think about what it looks like to live as if he took your judgment. And there's, there's, there's one thing in particular that I want to share with you. Is that so many of us, the reason we are so afraid, the reason we are so afraid to operate with any degree of transparency is because we are afraid of the judgments of others. You ever found yourself in that place? You're afraid that your friends, or you're afraid that fellow church members or people who are part of your life group are going to judge you if you put on the table the real condition and state of your heart or of your life. And so we live not as transparent and see-through kinds of individuals. There's no see-throughness about our lives. Because we prop up an image and we keep a mask covering our face and particularly our heart because we don't want anyone to know because they will judge us. But if you begin to live like your judgment, the wrath of God, the only thing that could really destroy you has fallen on another, that he was struck for you, then that gives you a confidence and freedom to be able to say, you know what, right now, I'm probably the most selfish person I've ever met. I recognize that. I know. I don't want that, but I see it. You can put that on the table. You can put on the table your greed. You can put on the table your cruelty. You can put on the table your selfishness. You can put on the table with others the things that are causing you anxiety and fear that you worry over and about because you're not worried that they're going to judge you. Because the judgment of God has fallen on Jesus for you. So what can they do to you? And then finally, finally, and this is where I told you the message would end, is that my hope for you is that as you go out of this place that you would live with thanksgiving. See, grace always, the right response to grace is always gratitude. Always gratitude. 
See, January 1 is rolling around, and in January 1, all these documents will begin to be delivered to your home from, the, from all these people that you've paid money to over the course of the last 12 months. And you're going to take all those documents, and you're going to submit them to the IRS with your tax return. Right? But here's, what I, here's what I want to know from you, is that if you had a friend who was house-sitting, whenever that letter comes from the IRS, and you open that letter, and they go, you've got... 10 years of back taxes that you owe and it's going to be this amount. And that friend who's there with you takes their checkbook out and writes a check to pay that debt that you owe. And they put it in the mail and they send it off on your behalf for you. They cover your debt for you. How do you respond when you come home and they say, hey, you got something in the mail (laughs) and, and I went ahead and took care of it for you. I wrote the check, sent it off. It's taken care of. You wouldn't know how to respond in that moment until you knew exactly the dollar figure they had written on that check. If it was a late water bill and they covered you 100, spotted you 100 bucks, you'd be grateful. But if it was that letter from the IRS and they spotted you $100,000, you'd fall on your feet, on your knees at their feet, giving thanks to them for their generosity, for covering your debt. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for you. So no matter where you are, no matter what physical ailments you may find yourself with, no matter what relational strife you may be in the middle of right now, there is reason to live with gratitude because God's grace has been showered on your life. So live with thanksgiving. Live with thanksgiving. May gratitude flow out of the grace that you've tasted. Because Jesus was struck for you. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful even for the hard parts of the Bible that aren't necessarily very warm for us. But they do wake us up. God, I pray for the individuals in this room this morning who needed a wake-up call today. They needed to be sobered up a little bit. They needed to recognize the severity of, of your judgment. But God, I pray for those in this room this morning who have never crossed the line of faith. And maybe they, I, I, God, I hope they don't walk away from this place today thinking there's another one of those hellfire and brimstone messages But God, I pray they would walk away from this place this morning with a heart that is captivated by the grace of your Son. The kindness of of you who are our God coming for us in Jesus Christ to take and turn your wrath. That they would taste of an experience of the love of the Holy Spirit being poured out in their hearts today. And they would let go of their endless quest to argue with themselves and for themselves. But they would just plead Jesus. They would let go of everything and take hold of him. Father, for others in the room this morning, I pray that they would see that their judgment has already fallen on Jesus. That they would live in full and free transparency with their lives. And God, I pray all of us would walk out of this room with hearts overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude.
for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.